0: Well hello everyone and uh, welcome to Rebellion Dogs Radio. My name is Dr. Alan Berger, I am the author of 12 Essential
1: Insights for Emotional Sobriety and I'll be joining Joe C today. This is Rebellion Dogs Radio, a contemporary look at mental health, we all have some, and recovery from addiction, now with less dogma and more bite. Today. Welcome to episode 63. We'll jump right into my chat with Dr. Alan Berger about emotional sobriety in just a moment. We'll close with music, which always manages to better express emotion than two white privileged sober dudes seem to. Dearly beloved, internationally enjoyed, but from Toronto, Canada, Offers a musical emotional hit for our show. We go back to 2016, one of six or eight studio albums they've made since the beginning of the century. We sample the admissions album. Admissions, what a great word, double meaning. Admissions, getting honest. Or admissions, the gatekeeper to being let in to school. Or to the hospital. Spooky. Anyway, here's a short quote from 12 Essential Insights for Emotional Sobriety, Getting Your Recovery Unstuck. In our lives, emotional sobriety is achieved by becoming aware of our toxic beliefs and unenforceable rules that make our emotional balance dependent on external conditions. We start to see how these ideas and rules emerge in our relationships with others. If you love me, you'll do what I want you to do, as well as in the lies we tell ourselves. The right person can rescue me from my troubles. Once we become aware of these unenforceable rules, we must surrender them. We need to move towards an attitude of, I'm okay, even if this or that happens. And away from the idea that I'm okay only if this happens or that happens. This is emotional freedom. That's from chapter 15, Paddling Our Own Canoe. Now, here's the 12 essentials in point form only. One Waking from our sleepwalking. 2. Living life consciously. 3. Discerning our emotional dependency. 4. Knowing that it's not personal. 5. Realizing that no one is coming. 6. Accepting what is. 7. Living life on life's terms. 8. Discovering novel solutions. Nine, breaking the bonds of perfection. Ten, healing through forgiveness. Eleven, living life with purpose. And twelve, holding on to ourself in relationships. Now this 2021 Dr. Allen Berger installment in what's been a great series of well-received books for a sober second thought We'll talk about several of these books on this show. But this one, this one uh, speaks to a Bill Wilson quote from an AA Grapevine article from 1958 when he was 34-ish years sober, where he says, Perhaps this will be the spearhead for the next major development in AA, the development of much more real maturity and balance. The whole essay is called The Next Frontier, Emotional Sobriety. So we're going to be about an hour with uh, Alan Berger exploring the frontier on episode 63. Pause any time you'd like to, but with no further ado, here's our conversation. Alan, uh, we're uh, joined again. Yes. Uh, through the wonders of modern technology, uh, this is uh, big be- becoming uh, a habit. And uh, I'm delighted about your book, by the way. I don't mean to give it all away, but but I really think, as, as you probably did when you were composing it, that there was a hole in the marketplace, something missing that needed to be addressed as best as someone could. And uh, I, I really think uh, you've, uh, sort of found that, but when I wrote a daily reflection book for non-believers, it was like a, a hole in the market, uh, this yeah. growing population. I was frustrated that it hadn't already been done. And I thought, okay, well, I'll try to the best of my ability to do that. And I think you've done the same thing. Can you tell me about your thought process in terms of, of creating 12 essentials for emotional sobriety? Yes, I can, Joe, but, you know, first, let me say, you know, I so appreciate
0: the work you've done, you know, and you are one of those people like I am, and we pay attention to what's going on. And And I think when we show up with that level of awareness and consciousness, that we become aware of what's missing. And it really starts to stand out. Like I like how you said, the hole in the marketplace, right? You know, the hole in my soul, I relate to that yeah. to. That's part of what, what, what inspired this book, you know, is really trying to find, to me, what full recovery is all about. You know, Ernie Larson used that term, full recovery, right? Complete recovery. I, I like to term optimal recovery. Same idea. And, and that's, to me, the exciting thing. And that's what inspired this book for me on my journey. I've just recently celebrated 50 years of being clean and sober. Um,
1: and, I'll try uh, to find some music to insert. Yeah, I don't know if please, I'll be if able to do
0: something <laughs> on that. Bit. It's you know, it's when I say those numbers, they seem so big, and yet it seems so short. Those fifty years have flown by, Joe, and it, part of it is is because I think what's happened to me and, and to me. I think the great gift of emotional sobriety is I get to show up in life in such a different way. I was taken back um, to the conversation that Carl Jung had with Roland Hazard. And then later on, when he started corresponding with Bill about his treatment of, of Roland Hazard, by the way, totally violated every HIPAA. (laughs) <laughs> every hip of regulation but back then it, they weren't so regulated right yeah. i mean we talk about these kinds of things which is great I sometimes not sometimes a lot of times i think we're too regulated in terms of this stuff but what dr jung was saying he was saying that in order to have this spiritual awakening and what i think of it now uh, is it's kind of a, an awakening of our consciousness Right is coming out of, and I say this, this is the first, actually the first essential insight for emotional sobriety is the realization that we are asleep, believing that we're awake. And what that means to me is that I have really, I'm functioning with a certain amount of conditioning that has put me in a trance. And so before coming into recovery, I was sleepwalking, man. I was sleepwalking through life. I was doing the things I thought I should do and I was supposed to do. And in one way, and it seems weird to say this, I wasn't a part of my life. I was, lived, I was playing a role that I was supposed to play and that I couldn't support because that role was so ridiculous in terms of what I imagined I had to be to be okay and what life had to be for me to be okay. You know, we were talking beforehand about perfectionism you know I told you I love so much you're you're sober enough pitch right when you yeah. give that and the other side of that is we talked about is how well you bring to the to into the light the shadow part of this which is the fear of failure man I was living life with so many fears fears yeah. that you'd find out that I wasn't who I thought I was supposed to be you know fears that I somebody would find out that I had feelings I wasn't supposed to have. I mean, there was, I mean, my life was riddled with fear. And the only time I had freedom was when I was high or drunk. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter. That was what I was looking for. I realized today that my quest with all of my drinking and using was because that was the only path I knew to be okay with myself. And the problem was it was short lived and it never made me okay. Yeah. (laughs) Never made me okay. It never actually delivered, but it, it kept promising. Deliver, except for maybe brief moments. Yeah. You know, brief moments. I was able to have that, you know, that exciting, that exaltation or whatever I experienced at that moment. But it really didn't work because because underneath that was all these ideas of who I was supposed to be in one way. So what Young Young was saying to Roland Hazard and then later to, to Bill, he says, our our being human has a thirst for wholeness. Mm -hmm. We want to be complete. We want to move towards what we can be. Now, I never was in touch with that. To me, that's my higher power, if you will, is being in touch with that force in life. It's like the force in Star Wars or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what I connect to in my recovery, right? I don't relate to a God, you know, that's out there and somewhere and has this great design and plan for us. It's much more personal for me.
1: Well, I don't a- know about your neighborhood of uh twelve step recovery, but when Star Wars came out, everyone talked in the force terms for describing their there it is recovery it is. right
0: yeah and that and that made sense to me because
1: it was personal
0: yeah
1: it was personal
0: you know i am I'm, I'm reading a great book right now I'm not finished with it yet I'm just in the beginning of it and I think it's her name is abrams it's it's a god that I could um that I could believe in. She, that's yeah. the title of the book. I don't know if you've read it.
1: No, but no, not yet.
0: It's really, it's, it's very well done because it, she's really addressing this issue is that our, our concepts of God have alienated us, alienated us from, from that power mm-hmm. is we see it too much out there and not a part of us. And something yeah. that is, you know, much more like the native people here in the United States is that. You know, their God was in the tree and the animal. If they killed an animal, they they gave thanks to that animal for the food and stuff. And it was so personal, their relationship with their higher concept of of a God or a higher power at that point in time. But that's what she's advocating for in this book. But that's what that's what I've discovered in in this whole work for me is that this program in, in especially emotional sobriety, which I consider Bill Wilson's fourth legacy, is helping me recover my lost true self, a connection to who I can be. Mm -hmm. And that means to me, Joe, it's not about being happy, joyous, and free. I enjoy that like anybody else. It's about being alive again. Mm -hmm. It's about being able to embrace all the different experiences I have in life. When joy is there, great. I can appreciate that. But I also can lean into my sadness today. I can lean into my anxiety. Because that has something to tell me. So what's happened is, is in, it's one way of thinking about this, is emotional sobriety is the path that we can take to not have an adversarial relationship with ourselves, with our fellows, and with life. Wow. Right? It's a different way of saying it, but it it's really moves me into this space where I can be in sync with reality, I can be in sync with you, and especially, and this is where the rubber meets the road for me, when things don't go the way I think they're supposed to go.
1: Let's uh, let's look at these just to sort of uh, give people context. There's these uh, 12 ideas that uh, waking up from our sleepwalking, which you've touched on, Uh, Living life consciously is number two. Discerning our emotional dependency. Put a pin in that. We'll talk more about that. Uh, Knowing that it's not personal. Put a pin in that. We could spend a whole hour talking about that. Realizing that no one is coming. Uh, There's a great quote from you that I hope I remember uh, to give on that one. Accepting what is. Number seven is living life on life's terms, as you've discussed. Uh, Eight is discovering novel solutions. Creative thinking is a big part of emotional sobriety. Uh, Breaking the bonds of perfection. Uh, Ten is healing through forgiveness. Eleven is living life with purpose. And 12 is holding on to ourselves in relationships. So here you're talking about relationships with self others and you know uh, the, the the world as a whole right yes right, right on. and beyond yeah i'm gonna just jump around here's okay. a, a a quote from your book we all need environmental support and we'll continue to need it for our entire lives i need the oxygen around me to support my life but it's my responsibility to inhale and exhale I need the support of friends and family as I move through life. But it is my responsibility to do the work that helps me progress in my recovery. Those people outside don't cure me. They support me. In other words, no one is coming. We need to show up for ourselves. In recovery, our sponsor can give us guidance and make suggestions. But we have to try those suggestions on and see if they fit for us. If they are in fact helpful, we need to play an active role in our recovery, especially if we want to achieve emotional sobriety. Nobody's coming. I know. I like. I. I it's that's a great paragraph (laughs) sometimes do you you ever somebody reads your
0: stuff and you go wow did I write that
1: yeah (laughs) yeah and and because one of my writing uh, coaches teachers said uh, name me one good uh, writer Uh, there's never been a a good writer and of course the whole classroom a had to show how smart they were and took issue with what he said he said no you've listed a bunch of great rewriters those are people who can rewrite, right? <laughs> so, Very so this is a great example of rewriting, That's right. right? That's right. It's a great example of
0: rewriting. And, and, and you know, look, it, it's so important what we're talking about here, because I, the framework I want to put it in is, of course, we all start life being completely dependent. You know, I'm in my mom's womb. She's providing everything for me. She gives me oxygen. She gives me nourishment. She provides security round the clock, 24 hour security. You know, all those things are totally taken care of for me. I'm completely dependent on her for my existence. Mm-hmm. As soon as I'm born, I take the first step towards supporting myself. The minute I'm born, now it's my job to do what? Well, I need to provide my oxygen. She's not doing it anymore. The umbilical cord's cut. So, hey, Alan, time to step up here. Now, maybe I need a little pat on the butt from the midwife or something like that to get going. But as soon as I get going, now I'm inhaling and I'm exhaling. That's my first act of Mm self-support. Now, that is setting us off on a trajectory of transcending our environmental support or dependence towards self-support. I don't call it independence because I'm not talking about independence in a way because we never get independent and don't need anybody. Don't need our connection to our environment. We will always need that through our whole existence. But what we start to do is have a different relationship to our environment where I now support myself. Now, Mm -hmm. physically... That happens instinctually. Nobody said, all right, let me teach you how to breathe. Now, I know there, there's some children neurologically compromised and have to go through that, and they can. Mm-hmm. But most of us, if we're intact neurologically, we're going to breathe automatically. It's instinctual, yeah. right? Just like when you get close to one, you want to walk. Nobody was saying, hey, Joe. Come on, man, you've been crawling around this house for nine months. Now I'm tired of it. Get off those hands and knees and, and start pulling yourself up and walk. Thank God we don't have a parent doing that. <laughs> Probably none of us would walk at that point. But the point I'm making is physiologically, that movement towards self-support, which is an interesting thing. We walk by standing on our own two feet. Yeah. But that movement towards self-support happens instinctually. It's an unfolding of the, of our nervous system that's moving towards becoming more and more whole. Mm -hmm. That's just hardwired in us, right? That's just a part of who we are to move towards what we can be emotionally, Joe, it's not the same deal emotionally, we're not wired to, to be able to support ourselves emotionally. This is where my relationship mm-hmm. in the beginning to those people in my immediate environment, you know, my mom and dad, if I'm, I'm raised by them, my caretakers, my attachment to them becomes so important. And we hear about that all the time now, right? Secure attachment versus insecure versus chaotic. I mean, all the, the different kinds of attachments have different impacts on us. But That's just the beginning of it. That attachment now forms some foundation of our life. But from that point on, what we're trying to figure out is how do I take care of myself? How do I stand on my own two feet? The problem is, is nobody really knows. So we can only learn what our parents were able to pass on or what our culture can pass on or our society. And the truth of it is, is our culture is not mature. You know, our parents, you know, Dr. Bowen, who did all this work on emotional differentiation, said he had this theoretical um, framework. He said, being completely undifferentiated, let's say in the womb, we're a zero. He says, achieving the best would be 100. He says, no person ever gets there. He says, at the best, our cultures have reached almost 50 you can say, well,
1: yeah, we're halfway there. Now, that's but, a good way to look at it, though. But it's a great way to look at it,
0: see, because the truth of it is, is we are unbelievably immature as a culture. It's still we focus in, in you know, especially here in America, and I think you guys have some of this as well, is, is I am more the more I have. It's all about having. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm focused on having and I start objectifying myself, And now I decide how marketable am I? (laughs) And if I'm marketable, I have to obviously manipulate myself to be what I think is going to sell well on the marketplace. I mean, it goes into all of this insanity, right? It's a real insane scene. So what, what Harry Tebow said, and I'll tie it back to where we started from, he said he was working with the first group of alcoholics up in Connecticut, and he was treating a lot of them. And he was making observations about what's going on with them. And one of the things he said, I am seeing that in these patients I'm treating that infantile aspects of the ego seem to persist into adulthood, quote unquote. Yeah. Infantile aspects, what means I want somebody to take care of me. I want someone else to carry me around. I want someone else to feed me. I want someone else to take care of me. So he was seeing, he didn't call it emotional dependence, which I think, People like Bill Wilson have, I've talked about it, Fritz Pearls, a lot of different therapists and master psychotherapists have described it, but he was talking about emotional independence. So what happens is, is I don't realize it. this is part of where I'm asleep, that I am walking around in this state of emotional dependence. Mm-hmm. I am looking for other people to do for me what I have not learned to do for myself yet. And I have not connected up that that's my job, not theirs. So then I generate all of these expectations, unenforceable rules, and I put them out in the world to manipulate the world to continue to keep me dependent. Yeah. What a, God, if only I could use that in a good way for myself, right? That, that and we do, that's what recovery does. It flips that script, doesn't it?
1: Yes, indeed. It, it does. I, I'm going through Uh, This same no one's coming syndrome now, like I'm looking back at two years of pandemic and saying, you know, there are a lot of things I told myself and believed I would do if I just had the time. And during lockdown, if I didn't get those uh, loose photographs in those empty photo albums, I'm never going to do it. Right, and if I didn't write that book, if I didn't learn that instrument, uh, I—it's I, probably a wish, not a not a, a real legitimate plan. No one's gonna force me to do those things. No one's gonna say these are your priorities, Joe. Do this first, and then do that. And, and I'm waiting for a sign, you know, as opposed to just choosing something and going forward. Yeah. So you're
0: right on, Joe, you're right on. And and when I do that, when I've put, I like to think about it as our emotional center of gravity. When I put my emotional center of gravity outside myself, which is what emotional dependence is, right? Mm -hmm. Is I am it's other validated self-esteem. It's an other validated sense of self. So when I'm looking around me for how I should feel about myself You're right. I'm not showing up for myself. I'm so focused on what people are or are not doing and whether they're approving of me or disapproving of me. I'm far from having that cleaned up. I mean, if you would have sat in my kitchen the other day and saw the interaction between my wife and I, you'd say "Ah, emotional dependence. And it it is that it still shows up. But what I was able to do is after the interaction happened and I was really upset about it, I sat down and I took a look at myself. You know, I did my 10th step. And I could see where I was putting a whole trip on what she should be doing to make me feel okay. And I apologized to her and unhooked, you know, her from my expectations. But that's the process we're in now. That's what emotional sobriety is about. It's about me reclaiming myself, right? It's about me supporting myself and learning how to do it. It is a learning process, man. I, I describe recovery all the time is learning is about discovering new possibilities Right. in our relationship with ourselves, with our fellows,
1: and with life itself. Your book starts off with this idea of uh, being stuck and how, you know, that's just, that is life, right? You say getting stuck is uh, common in recovery. Unfortunately, most of us interpret an impasse as a sign that We're not working a good program in quotes, right? You know, so we think we've done something wrong. Later, you go on and say, and I want to ask you about this a little bit. Every emotional disturbance and conflict, every uh, moment of stuckness contains an opportunity for spiritual progress and emotional growth. I'm unclear, like after all these years, I'm not playing devil's advocate. On um, the border between uh, what is emotional, an abstract idea, and what is spiritual, another abstract idea. Like, can spiritual be completely reframed as my emotions, my intuitiveness? my rationality. Certainly, if you believe in supernatural forces, there's this whole other element. But for those of us who don't or don't have any connection to it, if if such a thing exists, uh, sort of a deism, I think in the US, this word spirituality always comes into wellness and wholeness. All the time. Not Not so much in Europe anymore. And and in Canada, we're sort of stuck in between. So, yeah, you guys are stuck in between us. Yeah. No, it's such a good point. You know, see,
0: the way it, it strikes me is that when I am operating from my spirit, that I am operating from the best in me. That's the way I would talk it, about it which means that I have a different relationship to my emotions. So I see my spiritual self as my best self. It's the part of me that wants to be of value, the part of me that wants to, be, to make a, a contribution to this world, the part of me that, that, that wants to be in relationship with someone and have, a, and have that relationship be mutually beneficial. So it's that part of me that is striving, right, towards being the best that I can be. In fact, people don't often frame it this way, but I really do because I right now I have this Thursday night emotional sobriety meeting, yeah, and and you know you've been there, you've spoke yeah. for us at that meeting, and yeah. and we've changed the format now. The last forty some meetings have all been about looking, unpacking the twelve steps with from the lens of emotional sobriety. Right. How do the steps? really impact our development in terms of creating emotional sobriety because bill said that hey in fact, if you practice these principles in our daily affairs then we and those about us begin to achieve emotional sobriety so he said it explicitly yeah. first physical sobriety then emotional sobriety well how does it do that well when you look at step six and seven right this we're entirely ready to have these defects of character removed And then, you know, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. What's really happening from an emotional sobriety perspective is we're aiming to be to have to develop the best possible attitudes we can develop towards ourselves, towards our relationships and towards life. It's aiming to become our best possible version of ourselves. Mm -hmm. I call that spiritual. That's how I would tie it. So part of that means learning to deal with my feelings, not letting my feelings run me. I, 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 I wrote this down the other day. I was looking at some of these concepts about things. But I said, what we learn in emotional sobriety is that we live our experience rather than let our experience live us.
1: Yeah, 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 I- exactly. As opposed to being a, uh, a bystander to our own life. That's it right mm-hmm.
0: and see that's what happens and see i then have to learn how to deal with you know the pop phrase today which it's too little sterile for me in clinical i don't use it a lot is self regulation yes yeah you know? they love that yeah they love that that's the popular thing but i think about it it's just having a, a, a healthier relationship with myself is that i embrace all of me i respect my feelings but i don't give them privilege they don't get to run the show anymore They get to say, hey, this is important or that's important, and I can weigh out whether that makes sense for me or not when I step back and look. But they don't get to be the the deciders anymore, right? They do not get to call the shots when I'm operating from the best in me. They become integrated into my experience. They don't become my experience.
1: Let's talk about uh, forgiveness. You talked earlier about how in our sort of human experience evolution at best we get to 50 percent you know like uh differentiation uh, effectiveness right you know so we we can't transcend our own humanity right you know we have to sort of accept where we're at so living with our own limits and forgiving our regressions is is just as important uh, and as with others and, you know, gross injustices and that sort of thing. But but why is that emotional sobriety? You know, the role that forgiveness plays
0: in emotional sobriety is very important. And And I put that later, I forgot what number it was on the list right now, but it's later on because there has to be a certain foundation before we can get to forgiving somebody and to really have a practice of forgiveness in our lives. So if we look at what is the foundation to get to that place, the first thing is, is to understand that a lot of my problems come from taking things personally. Well, first of all, let's say I have an expectation, Joe, you should be like this and you don't do that. Yeah. Now I take you not doing that as a, as a reflection of how you feel about me and that you don't care about me in the way I think you should. So now I'm all hooked up and emotionally fused to what's going on with you because I've now said, this is about me. I don't see Joe in it, I just see Alan and what Alan wants. I'm not seeing you as a person. So for me, what happens with emotional sobriety is by differentiating myself from you and seeing that it's not all about me, it's becoming right-sized again. Yeah. We talk about humility being such an important part of our recovery. It's because it's a low focus on self. Mm-hmm. I don't have to look at the world now through the lens. What does this say about me? What does this mean about me? I can start looking through a lens and say, my God, let me see Joe. Instead of seeing what, <laughs> Joe's reflection of me. And I can start to have a relationship with you. The heart of getting to forgiveness is the first thing is, is seeing that what somebody else has done that you are upset about, and that's caused the resentment is because they violated an expectation or an unenforceable rule you have, and that you took that violation of that rule personally. And that has to be unpacked to get to forgiveness. Because once you unpack that, you see they didn't do that to me, that's just what they did. And at the, at the, Worst, it's an unfortunate situation. It's not a personal situation.
1: That's everything yeah. from driving to our Zoom meetings, right? You know?
0: <laughs> oh, God, yes, right? It's so true, right? How could that guy cut me off? What would, you know, how dare he? And look, yeah. people chase people down, pull them out of the- I had a client, Joe. Yeah, This guy was like 50 years old, big, strong guy, probably 6'4". You know, weighed 250 pounds, worked out all the time and stuff like that. He was driving with his family, two kids in the car and his wife coming down the 405 freeway. Somebody last minute, this old guy who was in his mid 70s, cut in front of him to get off an off ramp because he realized last minute he had to get off. Yeah. Well, this guy got how he cut me off. My God, look at what he did. He almost caused an accident. He chased the guy off the ramp, honked at him until he pulled over, went Up to him, started yelling at him. The guy had his window down. He reached inside and hit him as hard as he could. He broke this 75-year-old guy's jaw. The guy ended up going to jail for six months. Yeah, yeah. He took that personally. What did he tell his kids? It's all about you. You see that? When people do things, it's a reflection of how they feel about you and that they're not respecting you, and you better damn well go and get your respect. Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean... You know, you can see the nightmare that he's created for that family. And what he's doing is building into his kids the same problem.
1: Yeah. We talked about the difference of writing and rewriting. That's overwriting. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and look, that becomes the other thing is p- big part of
0: forgiveness. And this is, you know, I will credit it to Dr. Fred Lushkin up in Stanford. He said, when we generate a narrative about what happens, the narrative has in, in it, The two components I said is that there was an unenforceable rule violated. And we took that personally. He says, then we make up a narrative around that, that has us a victim of that situation. Mm -hmm. And this is the insight he had, which I thought was brilliant. He says, then we start to tell that narrative to whoever will listen. Mm -hmm. And he says, every time we do that, we re-traumatize ourselves
1: Mm -hmm.
0: because of the narrative. So one of the pieces of of this work and getting the forgiveness is you write a new narrative and you pull yourself out of being a victim. And you describe that narrative all much more from a phenomenological point of view rather than a personal point of view. And now that becomes your new narrative where you're seeing really empowering yourself. You're not
1: disempowering yourself by being a victim. Throughout your book, you really talk about dealing with our whole range of emotions. I enjoy the Stoics, and I enjoy some of the uh, Buddhist ideas about uh, attachment and its relationship with my suffering. However, like I, I don't want to watch the game and not care about the outcome. I, I want to have a dog in the race, right? Yeah. I, I want to care if my son and my daughter or my stepson are happy in life. Uh, this idea of uh, being like emotionally fit yeah. as being unemotional, uh, yeah. just, you, you know, c- can you just riff on that oh, a little listen, bit?
0: I, I love that you raise this because I too, I don't see the goal as, as being completely neutral and not having any desire yeah see i don't see that i don't buy that idea that that's where the path to healthiness Mm -hmm. it's it's the kind of connection i have so i distinguish between and i want this to i demand this Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i demand is what creates the unhealthy attachment to me Mm -hmm. The i want just comes out of my desires Mm -hmm. i am wired to want and have desires you are too Mm -hmm. If you didn't have a a mechanism inside you that tells you you're hungry, you'd never eat and nourish yourself, (laughs) right? If if you didn't have a mechanism that says it's time to go to the bathroom, we would carry this waste around with us all the time. So we are wired in a way to be responsive to our needs and desires. Mm -hmm. The problem becomes when I make those a demand and I fool myself into thinking, you've got to do this for me to be okay. See, now I'm not just saying, Joe, hey, I'd like to hang out with you. And you say, you know, Al, I'd like that too, but today I'm so busy, I can't do it. Now, if it's a demand, I say, fucking Joe, what kind of a friend are you? Fuck, never available. You're a fucking asshole. You're not a good friend. Fuck you, I'm not calling you again, right? That would be the demand part. The I want part says, wow, I'm disappointed. I was really looking forward to it. When's your next available date? Yeah. You see, (laughs) It's it's a different experience I have. If I treat it as I want this and I don't need it to be okay, mm-hmm. I would like to spend that time with you, then there's room for you. Yeah. If it's a demand, you can't say that you don't want to spend time with me. How dare you? Yeah. You violated a rule. We're gonna to have to put you up in front of the, you know, a firing squad and shoot you because you've now done the wrong thing. It's bullshit. I mean.
1: And it's easy with reductionism to just sort of bypass that. There's a word we've been using a lot lately, but just to say that no demands are the right way to be. And then, so no needs, no wants, no, uh, you know, and and that's. That's the problem I have with Buddhism. I got to tell you, man, see, because now maybe it's just a
0: cultural thing because Mm -hmm. You know, because I'm in a culture that's based on having. So I understand it's a different, mm-hmm. but I don't have anything wrong with it, with going after the things I'd like, as long as I have a healthy relationship to them mm-hmm. and I keep it balanced. Bill said this, this is about balance. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm turning you for what I want, the balance part of it is, is it includes you and in whether you want to. And then I get the second thought that's really important, Joe. Why would I want somebody to spend time with me if they don't want to? See, it's like, I never think this through. I would like to spend that time if that's also what you want, because then if we're coming together and we both want it, it's going to be a much better experience. But how many people stay in relationship with, let's say, a, a romantic interest with someone that doesn't want to be with them? Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like, what are we doing? You know, it's a reflection, obviously, of our low self-esteem and a reflection of this you know, this emotional dependence that we're talking about.
1: And personalizing again, right? If someone has moved on from us, if they don't dig us that way anymore, why personalize that right? as opposed to appreciate their uh, dynamics and, you know. Exactly. exactly. It, it exactly. doesn't have to be personal.
0: And see, and that's what I can do is if I stop taking things personally, then I can see you and respect you for who you are and you're no longer just a reflection or an object of my, uh, you know, affection, you are a person and there's room for you. And when I create room for you or when I create room for life, cause I do the same thing with life. Life is supposed to be this way. Mm-hmm. I mean, we hear this all the time. I, w- I was in a meeting on Monday night and I was sharing about some of these ideas and it was in a meeting and a, one gal spoke after i spoke and she goes i'm just in such a terrible place my father died and i am so overwhelmed with grief and then i could hear where the problem was she goes he wasn't supposed to die at this yeah. point in time he was supposed to live longer
1: yeah well
0: where i understand that comes from i'd like to be with him more an, but unenforceable, heard, rule. Yeah. an
1: unenforceable rule yeah
0: unenforceable rule yeah You know, his life ended when it ended. And now your job is, and seeing this, I even said this to her. I say, you're treating your grief as though something was wrong. I said, all your grief is, is an expression of your love for him. If you shift how you're looking at your feelings, instead of it being an objection to reality, being what reality is, is a a reflection of your love for your father and what he meant to you, he's with you every moment you're grieving. He's in your heart. That grief, Mm -hmm. that pain just shows you how important he is. And see, we don't know how to get that configured in the right way. And that's what Jung was saying. He says, look, it's all about us having a whole shifting is what he called the spiritual awakening shifting, which means that we shift and reorganize our whole personality to a whole new way of looking at life. And that's what happens with emotional sobriety. It is the path
1: to me to a spiritual awakening. Do you see uh, like this sort of positive psychology uh, emerging? It's not emerging. It's been around for a long time, right? But, but it's really sort of taken hold in that uh, a lot of the newer fellowships yes. are all about positive affirmations, yes. looking at your assets Uh, Looking at the intrinsic value you bring to your relationships as opposed to how you've harmed people, how is this sort of uh, shaping the dynamic of the recovery community, do you think?
0: Well, it's definitely penetrating, isn't it? And Mm -hmm. and probably more than I think any other approach in years. Um, And there's so many elements of just like you said, in terms of trying to be a value you know, focuses on resilience. Here's the one problem I have it's too focused on being happy. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, there's now a department of happiness at Harvard. <laughs> I want a department of sadness. If you can fucking have it, I want fucking equal rights. Let's have a department of, I'd I like, I, you want part, how about a department of apathy? Let's fucking have a department of apathy if you're gonna have a fucking department of, of happiness or nihilism. I want a department of fucking nihilism. Well, they do, it's existentialism, but, yeah. but, <laughs> But you see, what I'm saying is, is that let's not get out of balance again. I love positive psychology to say, and look at your assets, develop who you can be. Look at some of these things. I, there's nothing wrong with happiness. I enjoy it when it's in my life, mm-hmm. but I don't want to fall out of that side of the bed again. I don't want to say if I'm not happy, something's wrong. No, if I'm not happy, I'm alive. <laughs> That's all. It means I'm having another experience a part of my human experience, as you said before. There's going to be times I'm feeling great. There's going to be times I'm feeling crappy. How do I live and enjoy both of those? Yeah. As temporary states. They're it's never temporary. They states, right. They're all yeah. temporary.
1: Yeah. yeah. I, what, I, again, give that credit that? where credit's due to those right. Buddhists, right? That's all right. temporary. So, <laughs> where, you know, what's the
0: similarity between success and failure? They're both temporary. Yeah. They're both temporary. People don't see that is they're both temporary. And if I just treat them as this is something I'm passing through another stop along the way of this human experience, I'm having, I can enjoy what's available and suffer what's not. And that's okay.
1: Let's talk a little bit about because you're an experienced author. When was your first book published?
0: Wow. That was um, 80s, Love 90s. Secrets Revealed. And that was, um God, I can't even remember when that thing came out. So that probably was, yeah, maybe in the 80s, I think maybe early, early 90s was my first book. My second book was with Hazel. So the first book was with Health Communications yeah. down in Florida. And, you know, I look back at that book today and it still stands up. There's so many great ideas in it that were seeded with my work with my mentor, Dr. Walter Kempler, who was a brilliant, brilliant Gestalt therapist and translated the principles of Gestalt therapy into relational Gestalt therapy. He was really the pioneer in that whole area that's really, really been what Gestalt therapy is mostly about today. So that book, and then the first one was with Hazelton, was 12 stupid things that mess up recovery. Yeah. Then the second book, and I think they were coming out every four years was my first venture into this emotional sobriety world, which was 12 smart things to do when the booze and drugs are gone. And that was about certain elements of emotional sobriety. Still very good. Well done. This book captures the process that kind of took snapshots is the way I think of the difference between the, the books. The third one was the uh, 12 hidden rewards of making amends. Yeah. Was my third book. That's and that was with Hazleton. And then my last book with Hazleton was 12 more stupid things that mess up recovery. And then, um, then now I've gone into self-publishing like you have with 12 essential insights for emotional sobriety. And hopefully next year I'm working on a project with uh Vince, who helped me edit a lot, all of my books with Hazleton, and Tom Rutledge, another therapist, and we're going to do the
1: uh, daily reflections on emotional sobriety. Brilliant. Yeah. that That's going to be another uh, great book with yeah. a long shelf life, I think.
0: I think so. Just like yours is, Joe. It's the. These are great things that people can reflect on. I use that stuff all the time. I'll pick up your book and turn to any page. It's, yeah. Sometimes I don't follow it. I just say, let it, you know, let, let the forces. Yeah, that's me. right. <laughs> to flip a page and lo and behold, it's exactly what I need to hear. I, you know, I don't know how, you know, what did you call that? Synchronicity, right? Yeah. There's this synchronicity with life at times when, you know, you, these things get brought to us when we need to hear them. So I love those kinds of things, man. And, I, you know, you you have made a great contribution to the field at this point.
1: What surprised you about the self-publishing world? What's, what, what do you miss about the old structure where someone else worries about the marketing and someone else worries about the launch party and the, you know, satisfying bookstore sales and all that sort of stuff?
0: Well, you know, my experience with Hazleton in... You know, I think they've, they've done a great job and brought a lot of great stuff to people. The support for authors with Hazleton was minimal. There was never a launch party for any of my books with mm-hmm. Hazleton. Their marketing, I thought, was very, very weak um, in the beginning. And it usually died off. And every now and again, I'd be invited to do this. I think it would be safe to say that I've poured more of my time and energy and money into marketing than they have. Yeah, And so what I'm enjoying is is that by now publishing my own book, that everything I do is part of the marketing of that book. Yeah, And so I'm not looking, once again, no one is coming. I'm not looking for Hazleton yeah. to carry this message. I'm carrying this message. And, and look, the truth of it is, as you know, we're not going to be wealthy off of, of our books. We're going to be okay. It's great. It supplements my
1: income. I'm not doing it to make money. I'm doing it to carry a message, man. Yeah, that that's such a myth. I, I know people who've written more books than you and me combined and and they have day jobs.
0: That's right. I mean, it's 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 that myth you're gonna get wealthy over. For me, and my sponsor helped me get in touch with this when when Hazleton and I parted ways. Yeah. He says, Alan, you gotta ask yourself, what is what is really your your motive for doing all of this stuff? And look, there's a part of me that loves to be recognized, love for people to think of me, God, Dr. Berger's really great and he's bright and all this. That's wonderful. I, I can also support myself with that. I see what I'm doing and I feel good about it. And it's great if other people appreciate it. And if they don't, they don't. That's fine, too. Um, most of the time. Sometimes yeah. I still have my demands. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? sure. I, of course we do. But, but what I've really gotten to is it's about past this, carrying this message and really sharing the things that come to me, just like you do, Joe, you know, the work you've done, like I said, in the beginning of this stuff, I've gotten a lot out of your sober enough stuff. You know, I really, it's resonated with me and it helps me look at a situation. If fear comes up and say, wow, this is the other side of my perfectionism. Mm -hmm. Let me deal with the perfectionism. If I deal with that, the fear is gone. You know, I don't need to deal with the fear. If I go to the source of it, which is the perfectionism, you know, and my wife, this has helped us a lot in our relationship. We realized, my God, there was an expectation that somehow a relationship has to be perfect for it to be okay. Yeah. And now we're really enjoying just being shitty with each other. (laughs) (laughs) And not being afraid that that means we're going to be abandoned or, you know what I mean?
1: I, I would need to corroborate that with other Oh, well, don't,
0: please don't ask her, Joe. There's <laughs> always another side to that reality. No, no, she would say something similar. Look, yeah, yeah. she gets to call me, you know, whatever she wants to call me. I don't have rules about the language she's supposed to use. Yeah. She can say, I think you're, you know, you're full of shit or whatever it is. And fine. Say whatever you want to say. But see, if I'm so afraid of not being a certain way or loved, then I say, You can't talk to me that way. That's not a
1: loving thing to do. Oh, bullshit. You know? Yeah, that's an unenforceable rule. That's
0: an unenforceable rule. Talk to me. That's your expression of your pain. That's all that is. It doesn't mean anything about me. Uh, By the way, the more I know I'm full of shit, the less it bothers me when people tell me I'm full of shit.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you have a real knack for the obvious. Thank you very much for sharing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but isn't it funny that, that, that the, the, the more I was able to accept that, you know, look, I, I, I am stupid at times, I do stupid things at times, the less stupid I became. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because now, if somebody says you're stupid, okay, you're right. So let's figure this out now. I don't need to defend an image of myself anymore. I mean, that stuff most of the time. And once again, I don't do this perfect. Strive for progress, not perfection. But most of the time, I let that stuff go.
1: Well, uh, th- that's part of the our dependence on how other people view us. That you know idea that. I'm dependent on the five-star ratings and no one-star ratings, right? It's like that's taking it personally. Their relationship with me or what I've said or what I've written or what I wrote, you know, played on a guitar is a reflection on them. It's not a reflection on me at all, right? You know? That's so true,
0: man. And see, and if people can get that, if you are out there taking something personally, ask yourself what you're learning about the other person instead of focusing on what it says about you. Because we can learn a lot. You know, we all deal with pain in different ways. Sometimes we yell yeah. about it. Sometimes we turn it inwards. None of that is personal. You know, if somebody's saying something to you and they're blaming you for something. It's you don't have to take that on. Yeah, you don't have to take it on. Well, this is great, man. I, we could do this all day, like we said. How well, we-
1: exactly. In respect for the time, we will end with to be continued. To be continued. <laughs> continue it. And someday I am hoping that when it makes sense, we
0: get together and play some music.
1: Oh, that wouldn't that be nice? I yeah. uh,
0: well, count me in. I When um, this one, when we, when we get past this thing, I'm going to put something together and invite you to it and John and. I got a couple of buddies that are musicians, and we're going to get a little jam going here in Philadelphia.
1: I, I have a sober drummer in uh, Montreal who can't wait to get out. <laughs> well, well, we'll, we'll figure something out, man. We'll have yeah. a
0: little re- re-
1: music reunion. That was a uh, just very quickly a huge part of my early recovery. Was a you know learning instruments and new songs didn't give me time to think about drugs and alcohol and all of my problems other people depending on me being in a band right and there you go pro, you know pro social behavior of
0: you a side of you that was learning being creative yeah being in relationship too it's all important stuff as you said you know when you read that first paragraph it is
1: about our connections with people isn't it that's what yeah. this is about. yeah
0: well thank you joe
1: for having me on your show okay uh, uh, until next time alan b <laughs> take care, Jeff. To be continued, Alan and I got to know each other better as part of a foursome. Maria Hornbacker, John R. of the Verde Valley, Arizona Free Thinkers Living Sober Group, Alan and I, we, if you didn't already know, did a one-day Zoom emotional sobriety workshop. The momentum from that Created four others, so it's a five-part series with the four of us riffing off of each other. Each of us focusing on some nuanced topic to do with emotional sobriety, and some great, great audience participation that can still be enjoyed if that's what you're into. At freethinkerslivingsober.org/resources/video also be sure to visit abphd.com allenberger if you're not already if you don't already have this in your favorites there's archives of video audio writing all free and contact information again abphd.com now Teamed up with longtime friend and colleague, psychotherapist and best-selling author Tom Rutledge, Alan and Tom have their own podcast, again, if that's something you don't already know. This is the second series of podcasts with this duo and their friends. The first was Start Right Here, a series of 40 podcasts, still available to stream or download. And their new one, Emotional Sobriety, is a deeper dive into what we discussed here today on Rebellion Dogs Radio. Find these on your Spotify, Podcast Addict, Apple Podcast app, or wherever you consume your audio content. Or visit our RebellionDogspublishing.com episode 63 page for show notes, which will hook you up with all of that. In the spirit of To Be Continued, rumors are now circulating that I will be joining Tom and Adam for an upcoming episode on their show also. We close this show, as always, with music. Music captures emotional range in ways that, well, Alan and I have not been able to match Alan, I know you admire John Entwistle's bass work in the band The Who. Understanding your busy schedule, let me help you catch up with a 21st century version of The Who's establishment challenging pre-punk rock and roll. This is Dearly Beloved, with Rob Higgins on bass and harmonizing with fellow vocalist Neva Chow. This is from uh, their 2016 Admissions LP. It's available digitally, on disc, or vinyl. The song that I've chosen for attacking bass, vocals, and lyrical content that describes the challenges of, well, more of emotional inebriety is I Tried to Leave. I Tried to Leave. I Tried to Leave. How can it be? I mean, I had my doubts. Just when I think I'm free, I'm still in your house. I tried to leave. I tried to leave. Again, uh, Alan and I tried to articulate the challenges of regulating emotional well-being for over an hour, and we might have been outdone by rock and roll. Uh, You be the judge in 2 minutes, 22 seconds. Here we go. Thanks for being such an important and vital part of Rebellion Dogs Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, and all others, dearly beloved.